Do you ever see yourself going back to Lululemon and running the company again? Entrepreneur, philanthropist, and athletic apparel icon, our guest hardly needs an introduction, but he's getting one anyways. I am pleased to welcome Chip Wilson to Coastal Front. Having spent his youth in California, Alberta, and Alaska, Chip was formally educated at the University of Calgary. Informally, he gained knowledge by working on oil pipelines, taking the landmark form course, and reading books such as Good to Great, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and Catch-22. In 1986, Chip made Vancouver's home, and a decade later, he launched a world-class brand, which today is worth nearly $50 billion. Chip Wilson is much more than just the founder of Lululemon. As a husband and father of five boys, Chip's interests stretch across a variety of sectors, including real estate, land conservation, medical research, and creating opportunities for education in remote parts of the world, specifically Ethiopia. On today's show, we will hear firsthand from this retail guru how government policy helps or hinders business. Our goal is to understand what government needs to do, or for that matter not do, to see more Lululemon-type success stories flourish in our own backyard. Thanks for taking the time to be on our show today, Chip. Well, thanks so much for having me. Well, let's get straight <clears throat> into this. We're going to get into the topic of politics and government. Of course, we have a municipal uh, election coming up later this year here in Vancouver. Last year, we had Roger Hardy, who you know, is the founder of Coastal Contacts and current founder of Kits.com, the eyewear company. He was on our show, and, and during the time, he was already nine months into an application permit for what's now known as the Kits Coffee Shop in the corner <laughs> of, of you and, and, and uh, Cornwall. Right, right in our backyard here. Yeah, it was. I had a store right across the street from where the local is. Was my West Beach store selling? Uh, we had uh, windsurfers and um, and that type of sailboats, lasers and tasers out there at is one time. Right? One car would go by every twenty minutes. Really? That just tells you what it was like back in '86. Wow, that's a, that's a, that's a good nostalgic story. That's so. For nine months, at the time we were filming, he was already nine months into an application process to open up a coffee shop at a location that was a formal, formerly a coffee shop. It's amazing to me. Yeah. So what is your view on the city of Vancouver's permitting process when it comes to business? Well, I think they're conflicted. They say on one side they want prosperity in the city, that they want people to thrive, um, that they want renters to have low-cost housing, and yet <clears throat> they, they're incredibly fearful about the vocal five percent and uh and what that means in the media and their and their ability to get re um, re-elected so i think that they they can't reconcile that with with the type of government we have um and i don't and i really kind of shows to the guts that a, a civic council will have um and i don't think we have that right now um so you know, obviously the the amount of money that could be saved and the amount of business that could turn over right, almost immediately by almost de facto um, approving everything that's in the permit process right now, just letting it go so that the people inside there have the time to like to get their act together, to have one group, one person that everything goes through for 
uh, permitting for all the different types of permitting that's required. People shouldn't have to have to go to multiple different people. Um, and I think it strikes me, and I don't really know, but it's, it, it strikes me it's, a, it's an IT issue, a technology issue, more than anything else. Um, I think that the, maybe the government is wrapped up around social housing right now. I'm so wrapped up in it, they can't see the, the big picture of what causes it in the first place. I think they're very myopic. Now, Roger made a mention of the fact that because he was nine months into it, he actually reflected himself saying, you know, I, I, I've got the, the deep pockets, so to speak, to be able to afford to carry rent for a non-functioning coffee shop for nine months, but most people don't. Um, you must have a good take on still today on where business owners are at right now and in, in their process and, and what it must have been like maybe if we go back 10 or 15, 20 years ago, when you're, whether you were open up a Lululemon store or you open up a West Beach location. Can you maybe contrast what that environment looks like today versus what it would have looked like uh, a decade ago? Well, it's almost like the free economy back back in that day. And of course, that's when business flourished and people were able to make money and, and hire people and move quickly. Um, I, I can't even remember there being an issue, quite frankly, back then. Really? You'd get it done in a couple weeks and nobody would think twice about anything. And um, I, I contrast out a lot like Roger. I mean, I'm an investor uh, owner in uh, Arcteryx. We're opening up a store on uh, 4th and um, I think on Vine, and um, and uh, it's interesting. I, I was talking about the signage. They were saying, well, first off, we can't even work on the signage. We have to go get approval first, uh, the first layer of, of approval, and then it's a year to have our signage approved. And I went, a year to get your signage approved. It's like you can't even like like make a lease on a property I wouldn't want to make a lease on the property unless I knew what kind of signage I could put up. So sure. they've got the cart before the horse. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it, it just again screams of a government and the people that are going into government that have never run a business. I actually think that it should be a prerequisite before you can go into government of you run a business that's profitable for three years and you've had 20 employees and you've done that for probably at least 10 years. <laughs> I, I, I think we've lost something that's been very key to our society, and that is in the old days, this is even pre-me, a man would finish out his career maybe at 55, 56, and he would be supported by his business to go run for mayor or go run for city council as a way of giving back to the world. And um, they were respected in their community and doing good. No one, no one quits a $200,000 job to take a job with the civic government. You know, like that's a pure charity type of thing. Sure. Unfortunately, because of the way I think social media is now and um, <clears throat> attacking just good, good people, that there's no incentive for a good person to step forward. Um, and so what, what do you get? You get people that actually need the money from the salary of the city council and the mayor's office to actually live. Right. These are the wrong people to be having in there. Yeah. Unless we turn around and we say, the mayor's job is a $400,000 a year job and right. council people are 150, then we would get people that could count to 10. Right. I mean, really, we yeah. have people that actually don't know what a balance sheet is and don't understand how money works. So I don't know what they're doing 
voting on everyone else's money. It sounds to me as though what you're saying, we should almost go one of two directions. Either don't pay them at all, they get a dollar a year to be mayor. So you're only yeah. gonna attract people who can afford to actually be mayor. Mm -hmm. And those people are likely you know, business owners that have had success. Or like you said, pay them $400,000 a year so you attract some real talent out of like the business community or something like that. <laughs> I, you know, I'd never thought of it that way and that's perfect. <laughs> I'd vote for you. <laughs> Here's your you got two choices: four hundred thousand a year or zero. You pick. <clears throat> let's let's switch to housing development. Okay. Um, earlier this year, Kennedy Stewart passed what we he described as his Making Home Initiative. Uh, Mayor Kennedy Ken Sim announced his three 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 model. I'm not sure if you're familiar yep, with that. Yeah. Um, and there's been lots of talk around this idea of upcycling old buildings, such as three twenty Main Street, Riverview Hospital. Do you believe any of these types of strategies that are being proposed will uh, address the current issues related to building permits and, and development? Well, I have a great mistrust of anything that Kennedy Stewart would do because, again, I don't think he's a businessman. I don't think he looks at it from that point of view. You know, you can put in laws, but money will go to where it's most loved. And, um, and so I think there's a great mistrust around anybody that would develop whatever he wanted to do, quite frankly. And I, I, I would be a wait-and-see type of developer if I were him. Um, I think, you know, Ken has a good idea, um, the 3-3-3, three, three and three, which is, a, you know, kind of putting limits on how long an application is in before it, it's yes or no. Um, I think that that puts pressure on the city to have it done. But again, this <clears throat> the city is in a position where it has to, there has to be some fundamental differences in how they train and develop people and how they hire. Because if you don't have people in there that are want to make a change and want to do the, the right thing for the city, nothing will ever happen well. Right. So we can have a three, three, and three, as Ken has said, but internally there's gotta be a change in the culture. Yeah. Um, again, very tough to do in government almost impossible to do in a union setting yeah uh, impo almost impossible so it does seem to me that that's the case there's a problem mm -hmm. not only with our dysfunctional city council and mayor right now but also within the higher ranks of city staff mm -hmm. uh, just this sort of um, choice to be very um, mediocre in their in in approaching their jobs I mean yeah these and people are being paid I mean to be clear, I mean, if you look at the top five people being paid at City Hall, I mean, the city manager, and whatnot, mm -hmm. these people are all earning well over a quarter million dollars a year plus a, a cushy government pension. Right. And and it seems shocking to me that these people aren't doing more for, uh, for, for the citizens of Vancouver. Well, and when you get into a union situation, and trust me, I worked in union when I was working on the Alaska oil pipeline, and, and so I know how inefficient it is and how... Um, how can I say how it how the it's set up to have the mediocre win mm -hmm. and so you it's impossible then for a person who actually has the desire to do well in life to want to do the best for society to actually thrive within a union yeah and so I think that's the first thing we have to take care of and maybe we just maybe we need a big strike you know or you know, you know from you know, I, I, um, and maybe it's the taxpayer strike. And yeah. I think, you know, I'm, I was so impressed with uh, so much of the convoy that went down to, to, you know, Ottawa, notwithstanding, you know, 
some of the things about it, but in general, it was the best thing the I primary think happened. Theme of it. Yeah, the yeah. primary theme was great yeah. because I think what it's showing is that that people, you know, don't have to listen to government. You know, yeah. especially when their big government is coming in and taking over control of our minds and our wallets. <laughs> the bottom line is, I think that you know, the people that are uh, that are voting on the left hand side are just they're. Well, the government's saying, you know, you're too stupid to know how to spend your own money. Uh, like like a drama teacher and a journalist running our government are right. better. Yeah. It's impossible. Yeah. Now, you own a company called Low Tide Properties. Mm-hmm. You've got a real estate portfolio. So you, you're, you're the right person to be asking these kind of questions. Um, what would your advice be to future civic candidates looking to appeal to developers of the city today? I think that the, a, a person that's coming up in, in civic has to be pretty cagey about how they're they're approaching social media, how they're approaching the media. What I feel sure of, and I and I think um, I look at Justin Trudeau, who got it from his father, and that is, you lie, lie, lie to get yourself into into office, and then you do what you want. You know, <laughs> right. and seems that, to be the case. I'll admit, I got duped. <clears throat> I, I voted for him in 2015. And Trudeau? Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. And I'm one of his biggest critics. Yeah. We actually just published a, a Two Billion Trees video just the other day. It's got like over 10,000 views mm-hmm. on YouTube because that's a good example of saying he's going to plant two billion trees and mm-hmm. he's planted a couple million. <laughs> <laughs> Let's switch to provincial politics. And we're going to get to federal because you've brought up Trudeau a couple times already. So switching gears to provincial, um, Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney, mm-hmm. recently just announced that as part of uh, Alberta's recovery plan, he's reducing the corporate tax rate in Alberta from 10% to 8%. Mm -hmm. And for those listeners, to give them a reference, in BC, the corporate tax rate right now is 12%. In your opinion, Chip, what does provincial uh, corporate tax rates, what impact does that have on thriving young businesses? Is it it a factor? I mean, does does it really matter whether it's 8% in Alberta and 12% in BC? It probably doesn't, unfortunately. I'm going to say this from the point of view that I think the the NDP knows this that you're not going to leave, be you know, Vancouver to go to Alberta. I mean, just it's so beautiful here, and yeah. it you know, I'm from Alberta. Trust me, I know. I think it's the same problem as how are you ever going to get a great politician from Vancouver to go to Ottawa for the winter time? You're crazy. <laughs> I mean, why would you trade your life in for that? You yeah. know. So I think that now I'm from Alberta originally, <clears throat> came out here, you know, when in '86. So I, I appreciate the um, what I'd call you know, almost the Reagan Reaganomics type of thing, where Alberta's smart. They've got lots of uh, they've got a highly educated population. They have very entrepreneurial. Um, they have lots of office space, and they have the ability to attract people from all over the world that. I actually don't understand why the way the way Amazon just hasn't gone in there and taken over Calgary yeah, with all these really with all the great people in the office space. So, I think what he's doing is he's opening up that floodgate for smart people who don't have to have the beauty of of BC, to, but want to start and get their business going to give them the incentive to to live in Alberta. Okay, and it's a great place to live. It is pretty nice. It's pretty yeah. nice. Calgary is a pretty nice town. Edmonton pretty decent. When we go to go to corporate tax rates, so you've just pointed out that you, you don't think 
it's going to make a, it's going to be a needle mover to go from 12% to 8%. We're not going to lose that much business here in BC. But do you have a general opinion on where corporate tax rates should be? Um, well, no, I, what I do know is that again, money goes to where it's most loved. And I, I think that generally the politicians don't realize that and they don't know how much money leaves the country right. or even leaves the province because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can give you a, a flat out, you know, uh, and I'm just, and I'm probably a small part of it, but you know, I moved a lot of my money to real estate in Seattle out of, and, and it didn't end up in Vancouver. And I mean a lot of money, like more money than, 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 sh- than should leave mm-hmm. because it's not loved here. Right. And I don't trust the NDP government. And so, um, you know, there, I mean, you can even see it now on a, I'm sorry to go back to the civic level, but yeah. you know, there's, you have this Jean Swanson in there who takes her knitting to the civic council and then wants to tax, you know, my mansion, for instance. Okay. My mansion. And let's just take into account like that's already after tax money I've paid. And I've paid, a, you know, I've paid a half a billion dollars in tax, and yet she's sitting there with her knitting, saying that I should pay tax on the money I've already paid tax on. Yeah, you know, they, we, use, the, they use the term "fair." You haven't paid your fair share, or whatever that's supposed to mean. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, she's a psychophant. You know, she's just like she's no, you know, she's just sucking blood because she doesn't want to work hard. She doesn't want to be inventive. She doesn't want to employ people. She doesn't want to take risks, but she's willing to take it from people that do. Yeah. You mentioned Seattle, which is interesting for listeners to know if they don't know this, is that in in the United States, um, and you'll know about this, Chip, if you sell a piece of real estate at a capital and you have a capital gain, I think you have up to 18 months that if you redeploy that capital back into some Mm -hmm. other real estate, you can defer your capital gain. Right. Which is a really neat feature. Well, I mean... Because it doesn't mean it won't eventually get paid. uh, Right. But it, it encourages investors to not just sit on cash but put that money back into the economy back into some other piece of real estate exactly i mean what it does it 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 makes the the whole economy more efficient so whatever is being bought or sold is to the right person at the right time i don't think there's anything more evident than living in kitsilano most of my life and all the Greek and uh, Italian owners of real estate in, in Kitsilano, who there's no incentive for them to sell an old, decrepit building. No, there's not. Because their tax bill is so big That's when right. they don't even know where to put their money. Yeah. So, um, so that the inefficiencies of that are, it's, it's, it's astounding. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Government has no idea how much money is being like locked up in this city because of inefficiencies like yeah. that. You, you know what, Chip, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I live up in West Point Gray, mm-hmm. 10th Avenue Village, tons of vacancies. And I've had some friends say, well, it's, how do these property owners like afford to just hold a property with nobody renting for like literally years? Mm-hmm. And the whole area has become completely vacant. I mean, the first move I would make is I would just get rid of pay parking altogether, just make it free parking to try and bring some people back. <laughs> yeah. And well, there's still pay parking. There's up still there. pay parking. I can't believe it. Like this place is like is a total ghost town. And I, I said to my friends, look, these properties are owned by families that have held these for decades, yeah. if not generations. And you're absolutely right. There should be some kind of you know tax holiday, tax deferral, 
if you're willing to invest a certain amount of money into an old decrepit building or tear it down and build something new. I mean, oh, that's brilliant. I think that that's exactly what needs to happen. And again, just to think about how much industry would be created, it'd be unbelievable. how many jobs, how much tax revenue would occur. And housing. Yeah, for sure. It's all locked up. Chip, do you have any view on the political system today in BC, in Canada for that matter, and whether it favors one type of government from another? Well, what I see is that the left is so well organized, and it helps, of course, be because I think they um, can set up charities and um, and employ people at a at a price where that's actually a good salary for the for anyone who's socialist or on the left, where it's not enough of a salary, it's not enough an incentive for somebody who, what I would call a dreamer, and I'd say a dreamer is anybody who has an idea, anybody who wants to like have that idea and do something with it and go forward. And so you kind of have this, um, I wouldn't say like left and right is so much as people that are socialists and those that are dreamers in life. Um, when you have this uh, a setup like it is now where the unions can put in their $1,200 a month, or a year, year, year pardon 12, me, yeah. pardon me, yeah. and it's organized to do that, and you can give your, and you can give free time. And yeah. of course, unions are set up to be able to allow their people to have free time. Yeah. The, the, the dreamers, on the other hand, if you really think about who they are, they're too goddamn busy, like fulfilling on a dream in life. Yeah. They're trying to like struggle. Um, they've got the small restaurant. They've got a tech idea. They're, they're doing something and they're working 18 hours a day. They're sweating. They're starving. They're not working out because they've got this like dream they want to have. Now, they don't have time to babysit a government or to like yearly fund a government or get on board and go door to door. Like these aren't the people. I think these people expect the government to kind of get out of their way and allow them to fulfill on dreams so that they can employ people, pay taxes, and their employees can pay taxes, and then it works that way. Mm -hmm. But that's not the way it's set up now. So the only time that the right can really get the, the attention of dreamers is during the, the three months before an election. And they go, oh, yeah, 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 this is, like, terrible. I, like, I can't, I, you know, I can't fulfill on the dream. And so they, they put some money in and they get the candidate and some candidate comes forward and it's not going to be them because they're too busy doing <laughs> what they're doing. And, um, and it's not coordinated enough. So... This is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And of course, if you look past through history, you see that, um, you know, again, it's true. Like maybe you end up with very few people that own a lot. And then it's slowly, then those, then the people rebel. And then it's all evened out. And then of course the dreamers rise to the top as they always do, because they're going to work harder than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then you end up with this cycle, you know, cycle that continues to go on. I think we're definitely going through a cycle right now of uh, dreamers are not allowed. Yes. And um, and uh, and so, I think it's working. It's worked against us now. I completely agree with you. I mean, that's why I have folks like yourself and Roger Hardy on because I want to do my part to remind people that we need dreamers mm -hmm. in our society. Because they're the ones that move things forward. They're the ones that create jobs, build the economy, create a tax base, 
make this place a great place it is to live. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about federal politics. Love to. Okay. Get into it. (laughs) Now, my opinion is Canada seems to be a country that loves to give out subsidies left, right, and center. Mm -hmm. I mean, some examples. Recently, the the government announced a half-billion-dollar transformation of a GM plant. This is is taxpayers' dollars. It's not GM spending this. Half a billion dollars to convert a GM plant in Oshawa to produce electric vehicles. Last year alone, the Canadian government paid out $18 billion in oil and gas subsidies. Vancouver's a massive recipient for film and video tax credits. What is your view on the Canadian government's subsidies, tariffs, or import taxes in protecting certain sectors of business in our in our country today? <clears throat> At the end of the day, I don't think people understand the cost of, of maintaining or, or approving and um, these subsidies it's and again it comes back to big government so I think if you looked at like we're probably the most successful economies in the world are that are that really don't have any resources at all it'd be Hong Kong and Singapore right you you can't take Norway because you got two million people there sitting on a vast oil reserve that Right. You know, totally if socialists think that that's the model, then they, they better go find some more oil, <laughs> you know, type of thing. But you look at Hong Kong and Singapore where they have a flat tax rate that, you know, it's, it's like it's a no-brainer. You know, the government gets out of everybody's way. And, um, and that is far, far more efficient. And you, you look at the economy that gets created and the, the businesses that want to move there, locate there, hire people there, that... That tells me right off the bat that whatever the, our government is doing is only because they want, they're, they're going for votes. Now, I'm a very much of a free trade person, and I think that if two countries want a free trade, then there's no tariffs. That, that's the easiest thing for Canada to do. You don't have all the overhead administration, everything else. And plus, the type of people that would do that anyway aren't entrepreneurial, so they, and they're not very good negotiators. So right. you, can't, you can't like think that, that whatever, whatever looks good in the press that the liberals may be putting out is actually a good deal. Yes. I think that the F-16 or jet, or jet flight, fight planes would kind of tell you that. But I think if, if there's another country and they don't want to play that free trade game, then I think you should just tear off the hell out of them and just kind of put them out of existence. Okay. Um, I think that uh, Canada has enough good partners. I see we're setting up a free trade agreement with the UK. But I think the thing is you got to get the complication out of it and make it super simple. Yeah. And we'll make a lot more money doing yeah. that. Did Lululemon ever receive any subsidies or grants or tariff you know, advantages? No, zero. Zero. Yeah. That's what I thought. Look, you're a very well-traveled individual. I know mm-hmm. uh, during the years when you were chairman for Lululemon, you spent time in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, during your time, uh, your latter years of, uh, of being at Lululemon, you helped in this massive expansion in the United States market, Australian market, uh, and other places overseas. So you're truly like a, a global business uh, businessman. So my question is, are there any government policies that you've seen in other countries? You kind of actually just highlighted them with Singapore and Hong Kong and their flat tax. So that's a, one good example. But are there any other policies that you've seen that are 
well entrenched into other gov uh, other governments or other nations that we don't do here in Canada that we should consider so we can help Canadian businesses thrive? No. I'm going <laughs> to okay. say I'm just going to be as simple as I don't think people understand how much money is lost by having big government run things. It's just by definition, the people that are running things in government actually don't know business. So maybe I could reverse the question yeah. and say maybe it's not so much about government policies that are in place, but maybe government policies, maybe if we use Canada, mm. there are certain mm. types of policies we have in place that, that shouldn't, we shouldn't have. Well, I think going back to what you, know, you were saying about uh, Seattle, you know, when you can sell property and kind of move it on, I think the government should get, should eliminate anything that's stopping capital from moving to where it needs to be as quick as possible. Yeah. I'd say, and I, and I don't know what those are other than the obvious one you said about, you know, being able to sell property and rebuy in 18 months. Yeah. One of my favorite Donald Trump policies, he had quite a few despite his character. He had a mm. lot of good policies. One of them that he implemented as a presidential order, I think it was called, was that every single department within the federal government of the United States during his, under his watch, if a bureaucrat wanted to impose some kind of, implement some kind of new red tape, new policy, they had to get rid of two. Mm. I thought, and I, th there's another part to that, and yeah. this is something, thanks for, for bringing that up, because I, I think no policy should be put in unless there's a sunset date for it. Okay. I think when I look at Europe and I see how inefficient it is, and it is only living because of tourism, Europe, I, I feel yeah. certain about that, that they, they get, you know, law, laws come in, but they never go out, and they become, they come old, and they never get reviewed. So if a law was only able to happen, like, for maybe four years or three years or seven years, depending on what it is, then, that, then the government would have to go back and revisit it. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I agree. Absolutely. I, I don't particularly think Europe is a great place to invest your money, that's for sure. I would never invest a dollar in Europe. Yeah. And, and North America is quickly becoming that. So where do you where do you invest? Where, where do you go? Okay, Chip, this has been really good. We are going to switch gears for the young listeners of the show, entrepreneurs, business owners, to kind of help give them some inspiration. One of the reasons I think I said earlier that I was really excited to have you here is because I believe in our country we need to uh, champion uh, folks like you who've done such a good job for our, our city, our province, and our country. You know, if you look at the billions of dollars worth of, of economic development you've built, taxes you've paid, jobs you've created. I think about all the women I know who used to work at Lululemon and then launched. A, Phenomenal businesses. Yeah. Okay. Isn't thousands the, of uh, them? What's that on Fourth Avenue? Turf. Turf. Best yeah. business ever. Right. <laughs> yeah. So those ladies used to work at Lululemon. Yeah. Right. True. Enough. Yeah. Turf. It's a great spot. My wife loves going there. So, uh, look, everyone everyone knows you because of mainly West Beach and, of course, Lululemon. Mm -hmm. But there are also uh, businesses that didn't pan out for you. And I'm just I just know two. One of which being Ococo. We talked mm -hmm. about that a small little startup uh, that was meant to be, I think, a, a children's organic clothing line. No, that was no? Aviva. Oh, we Aviva. Had, yeah, I we apologize. had. Ococo was our. And back in 2003, I was really on the whole eco thing. Of course, yeah. what I think Lululemon was the first company ever to recycle. And I, we looked at this whole natural fiber thing, and we really went forward on it. I think two things happened. One, we recognized that breaking down uh, soy and other kind of fibers like that, actually with chemicals and everything, was worse than just growing more cotton. 
So okay. it's one or the other. So that was one thing that could put the nail in the coffin. And then quite frankly, I think the other thing is we found that people that were buying natural fibers and f- natural fabrics at the time were very frumpy people who were very, didn't want to spend money. Okay. The third thing that happened is to get a designer to work with those type of fabrics. They actually weren't the most stylish people in the world. So we, we just couldn't kind of replicate what was the the uh, i'm almost going to say like the sexy part of lululemon right yeah. yeah okay so that's a good insight into the fact that you know not everything you touch turns to gold right uh i know kit and ace was a bit of a challenge for for you as well um so my question to you is do you have any advice you can give to young entrepreneurs who are starting off or business owners that are are turning a profit but they haven't really hit that huge stride yet they're not major success story yet do you have any kind of just general advice yeah, yeah sure yeah you know I, I it's interesting that you say that they've they've just hit a profit type of thing I mean we it's very common knowledge that nobody goes into business and makes any money their first five years so it's a big big struggle so yeah. now you've so they've had that five years and now they're starting to make some money but they can't either the world has changed or the government has changed or their business has changed something like that and and what do they do I think one of the 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 successes of my life was being going into work every day and going if I was to compete against myself today what would I do okay and it has me like drop things that look successful things that I'm invested in that I think you know I've oh, I put too much money on that I can't leave it on the ground it has me eliminate all the dead wood yeah and or maybe even wood that's floating but I know it's gonna like drown yeah. or it's gonna drown the, the boat so to speak so I think it's such a beautiful way of looking at it. So in order to do that, it's really creating the business from the future. So most people like have these experiences of the past. I do too. And I want to, and I'm thinking then they're, they're dominating how I'm operating in the present. Where if I kind of said, no, I, if I look five years out, what business is going to be great? What's going to, what's going to happen? And then be that person, be that business now, so it can grow into that in five years. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be able to, to slough off dead wood. That's a really good advice. So just to be sure, the question is to ask yourself, if I was to compete against myself in this environment, what would I be doing? Yeah, would the, would the business look different? Would I have would different people? Would I right. have different processes? Yeah. Would I have different markets? Mm-hmm. Love it. Now, I know culture is a big part mm-hmm. of what made Lululemon very successful. That's my belief. And I know it's a big part of you, and it's a big part of what you built. Where does profit for a business and culture intersect? And, and when you're a, a, a young business owner, how important is culture versus profit? Well, I, I come from the point of view that culture gives profit. Okay. Um, and there's probably businesses that don't have to have it. I mean, there's probably online digital businesses that, you know, just it's just purely transactional. I'm not that type of person. I'm a people pe- person. I love people and I yeah. love to be around them. Um, um, I think that they, this confusion that's in the world right now of I've got to like do good and not make money you know, or making money is bad and, you know, it should all be about everybody else. This is very wrapped up in socialism and communism and uh, and I don't think it's doing anyone any favors. Nobody makes enough money off of that type of process to make to make a profit and pay taxes and actually pay for social services that we really need. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, it's a recipe for disaster. 
I agree. I mean, if you marginalize all businesses and you sort of take away both the financial incentives to succeed um, by how say, having high tax rates and all sorts of um, impediments in the way, um, as well as culturally, if we do that, um, wh where do we build that tax base to pay for all the wonderful things we have in our society? Right. So I, for me, you know, as far as culture went, I, I kind of I put culture into the same uh, bucket as communication. So I think about how how can my employees talk um, freely? How can they talk with speed? Um, how they how they can talk with um, not letting their uh, personal emotions or even their past experiences get in the way, and so um, so we created what I think is the next version of what is now values to be something called the linguistic abstraction. Okay. So this so I what I've noticed is that people have visions. We set up a vision and values at Lululemon in 1998, and that was like groundbreaking. Yeah. But like. Like the word extreme from the 1980s, so when advertising starts to use the word extreme, nobody cares about the word anymore. I think we're living in that era right now where people aren't are listening to vision and values. They go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you got them. That's a check, you know. But they don't even read them because they're all the same. Yeah, it's like ESG. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's yeah. This is interesting. Yeah. So anyway, the I think my thought was um, I took the five top books or courses that we had our but that we used for people development inside of Lululemon and I actually had it in West Beach my former company and now I'm bringing it into you know my companies within this Amher group that I have with Arcteryx and etc but um, it's creating a linguistic abstraction so what is it what is it it's like when two surgeons are are working on a knee you don't have time to go into a long explanation about what you're doing or what you're requesting so one word means a whole lot because okay. you've got to work with speed. Yeah. So um, this took our our def our the top thirty things that really made our company what it is, how we built our business, and so somebody in Vancouver could talk to someone in Beijing or Moscow with and know okay this is I understand exactly what you mean when you say integrity or you mean conditions of satisfaction or you mean committed listening or these terms yeah, so that yeah so that the companies can move very very quickly and everyone's on the same board mm -hmm. and you said there's 30 of them yeah there's about 30 of them yeah you can go yeah. on chipwilson.com and see the ones I've developed for the ones I for the for my hold it all company in low tide right now. Okay, great. And you call them linguistic linguistic abstractions. Abstract abstractions. Okay, great. Um, that's a good segue when you mentioned uh, chipwilson.com about our last topic here of business philanthropy. Um, your vision for the Wilson Five Foundation includes creating forever parks, supporting public art, and encouraging movement. For those listeners who are uh, maybe not aware. Uh, Chip, you and your wife Summer made a donation uh, that is uh, those those statues down in Denman and Davie that everybody loves <laughs> getting pictures of. Amazing laughter statues. Amazing laughter yeah. statues. Yeah, in Denman and Davie. Yeah, um, we bought a million smiles a year. Yeah, I think that's what we <laughs> could, we, we kind of <laughs> laugh at that in our family. That's pretty good. How did you select these three different sections to focus on, and how do they relate to one another? So again, we're talking about forever parks, public art, and encouraging movement. Well, of course, we. My wife and I come from athletics, and it's been our our love in, in life. And and of course, what made 
my company's West Beach Lululemon and my other ones is combining function and fashion. So inside of the art, it's like how can we how can we buy and donate this great art to the city that would have people get out, walk down there, interact with the art, and walk somebody else. So that's 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 part of it. But also inside of that is design. So not only do we have the athletics part, but then we actually, you know, my wife is a graduate of arts at University of Victoria, and um, I'm not a graduate of arts, but, you know, I think that that's intuitively who I was as a young child. And so um, so we put those two things together. The, the thing that we're really onto now is BC and probably the northwest of Australia are the two places in the world that were the last to be developed. And you only have to read Guns, Germs, and Steel, a Pulitzer Prize winner, to understand how the world got developed. It's a great book. Yeah, we don't realize just how beautiful and untouched this province is. Yeah. And so what we, we also don't want a lot of governance. And a lot of people get into charities and they get into philanthropy and there's boards and everything else. We don't have the capacity for that. We feel like if the government will leave us alone, we can make way more money for the people of BC working in our business than sitting on philanthropy boards trying to figure out how to dole out money. So we're working with the Parks Foundation. Um, There's two or three of them in BC and a great guy named Ross Beatty. Um, And we're... um, uh, our, our goal is to go out and buy major, major pieces of land in the province. And there's not that many of them, seeing I think only 3% is fee simple of this massive province. Wow. So, But we've got other ideas of working with the First Nations and how we can um, uh, buy out um, mining rights and forestry licenses in order to and have the First Nations like uh, take care of those lands and use them for tourism and keep them pristine and beautiful. Wow, that's a great vision. Yeah. What are some of the recent uh, acquisitions that you've done? Well, we have three or four that we did on the in the uh, Salish Sea. So okay. um, uh, Englishman's River uh, on Vancouver Island where Parksville is, yeah. beautiful estuary at the delta of the river that some guy 40 years ago had built a house and then put and built it up on about four or five feet of gravel and and of course it ruined it for all the birds and all the water that kind of comes through there and everything so we bought that now we'll let nature kind of take its uh, way on that there's a couple of uh, I like maybe four or five islands that we've bought that kind of fit into a kayaking um, maybe 11 or 12 islands you know to kayak around and then um, the south part of one of the islands so but we're always looking for that but it's hard to to be like saying, oh, we want to do this with the amount of money they have. And people think, okay, well, immediately going to put the price up. So we're mostly looking for people that have either, you know, um, you know, put it in their will or are going to retire or they have no one wants to take care of the land and the children want to let it go. And they want to do right by the by the province, not only the province, but I'd say multiple different generations. Mm-hmm. I love this because... It's a legacy that is forever. Yeah, hence, I, the, hence the concept Forever Parks. I, I am so thankful for whoever got Stanley Park together. Yeah. Aren't you? Like, Absolutely. I mean, I mean, that's just like, if, yeah. if I can do that for people in the future, yeah. you know, just outside Absolutely. in the Salish Sea, I'll yeah. be happiest guy in the happiest dead guy in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Chip, do you have a vision of what you want your legacy to be? Hmm. 
Well, <clears throat> at the end of the day, I want, I, I have a really neat thing going with my low tide properties. Yeah. And I, because I don't have to, I don't have to ever sell them. I'm not a, I'm a developer that develops and I'm holding for like 300 years. Right. <laughs> so in order to, to make that work is, is developing these um, areas like the South Flats, uh, Strathcona. I mean, I have a deep love for Kitsilano. It's just so expensive and there's little return, but I'm, I'm almost buying land in there just to preserve the, the, the essence of, of West Forth and the Kitsilano um, street there. Um, so I, if I can do anything, I think it's developing neighborhoods for um, single professional 32-year-olds. And th- th- that's always been my market my yeah, whole life, sure and has, I'm really yeah. good at. So where do they work? How do they live? How do they shop? How do they really get the most out of life? I yeah. mean, I, it's kind of like... The you figured out how to out- outfit them for their athletics, and now you're going to do everything else <laughs> yeah, for their yeah. living environment. Well, yeah, it's a, yeah, and actually the two are, you know, it's it's a very interesting market. I think I I, I, I developed that market. I, I targeted that. I found yeah. it, you know, I probably called the super girl, you know, market probably... 20 years before anyone ever knew it was going to exist. Yeah. So um, if there's, you know, and inside of that, then then I have to have and raise great children in order to keep that kind of legacy going. And of course, hopefully then that, the revenues from that property will enable our family to have great medical and education, which is which is what I would want for my great, 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 great grandchildren, if there's yeah. anything I can do. I have two bonus questions for you, Chip. <laughs> so I heard a rumor that you bought a year's worth of advertising mm-hmm. on the bus stop billboard out front of Lululemon headquarters. Right. So can you validate whether that's a true statement or not? And if so, why did you do it and what did you do with it? Yeah, sure. I wasn't, I left um, Lululemon, I left the board of Lululemon because I felt like it, um, you know, I, I mean, it's my own fault. I ha- I ended up with eight directors that were very metric-driven and quarterly-driven and and uh, couldn't see a future and couldn't see how big the market was of Lululemon and uh, wanted to hoard money rather than invest when, when 213, when this is, we've seen in the last 10 years, is the biggest explosion ever. And the, the board was just like so insular and, and hiring terrible CEOs, et cetera. So... So I thought, well, I can't get, I, as one creative guy and founder and visionary, I can't get anything through this board. Like it was highly frustrating. So I kind of go, well, is it worth my life to do that? So, so what's my alternative? I'm not a man to sit on my, my hands and do nothing and I, action is the way that I would do it. So I, uh, I decided I would leave the board and then and then I would, at AGMs, I would go and ask like very pointed questions that I knew that the public needed to know and answer. Lou Lemon then went and set up a virtual meeting. And so they, I would hand in my questions and then they would either not answer them or they would change the question or they wouldn't answer, or they, they would change the answer to have nothing to do with the question. So basically they neutralized, you know, I think my questions, which would have added billions of dollars to the to the company's value, so then I thought, well, what is my action now? What what have I got left? So, I thought, well, I have the bus stop outside of the building. I'll go do that, and I'll ask my questions there. And then I thought, well, my other action is 
I know whoever writes, who the victor always gets to write the story. So I thought, you know, I better go out and write the Lou Lemon story, which is called the story of Lou Lemon. For and it's free on my website. It's also on Kindle and audio. Um, I think Amazon. But um, uh, so those are the two things I did in order to counter and try and really add as much value to the to Lou Lemon as I possibly could. But of course, there's very little listening for me <laughs> because you know I, I work in the opposite way than metric people do. Well, I remember uh, cruising by that bus stop every now and then and seeing the the questions. And they were quite entertaining. <laughs> do, do you have any ones in particular you got a lot of uh, coverage on, or you got you got a lot of laughs out of? Oh, you know, I, I can't remember. No, now. I'm okay. sorry. Yeah. Okay. Last one. Steve Jobs was famous for building up Apple in the 1980s. Mm. <clears throat> he then got ousted by the company to come back and rebirth it to this monstrous company that mm-hmm. is today. And sadly, of course, he passed away early. Um, do you ever see yourself going back to Lululemon and running the company again? No, I think... So I left West Beach. I sold West Beach in, I think, 97. And then in, uh, I think, 2000, it moved back from Salem, Oregon to Vancouver, and they asked me to run it again. I went in, and the company had changed. Well, the world had changed. I was moving vertical. I was moving to direct a consumer, and it was entrenched in wholesale. And it had a bunch of you know old people that were entrenched in wholesale themselves that didn't want to change. Um, I think something like Lou Lemon could have only happened because I set up all the processes and the th- culture, the training and development, all at one time. So um, the retail store operated with the design, which operated with accounting, and which worked with HR. Everything was integrated, and it was so clear to me how a fully integrated company worked. Um, So, you know, even today, there's nobody I can see that has the Lululemon model, which is why it continues to go up in value. Mm -hmm. I'd say a refrigerator could run Lululemon after I left because not just me leaving, but this core group of people that we had started out, we set this foundation. It hasn't gone, it hasn't gone far from that. So, so my, no, I I mean, one, they wouldn't have me back (laughs) because, you know, I would disrupt the directors and the first thing I'd want to do is get rid of them all. (laughs) And so they're not going to like let me back in. So what is my alternative then? Well, I mean, I'd have to go to my personal vision in life and that is to elevate the lives of 20 and 30 year olds in the technical apparel and athletic shoe space through transformational development which is the culture that we have referred to a little bit here so I go well what's what's my access for that then so I went um, maybe when I started Lululemon um, back in 1998 I knew there was this company across the water called Arcteryx and I always wanted it but Lululemon was such a rocket ship I couldn't take any time to you know, t- to buy it, and when I and so when I left Lululemon in 2013, around 2:15, I went, I want to, I want to look at buying Arcteryx now. It was owned by a conglomerate out of Helsinki that owned um, Atomic, Solomon, Wilson Balls out of Chicago, Peak Performance out of Stockholm, and it um, went. Geez, you know, that's just too complicated for me. And I'm not a, I'm not a financial P private equity wizard. I'm a brand product guy, so right. you have to know that. So um, 
I said, okay, well, then I started looking at Wilson Sports out of Chicago because I had, thought it had the right name <laughs> and I could do something with it and it didn't have any apparel and I knew how to do apparel. Yeah. And so uh, I went to buy to look at buying it. It was owned by this Ammer conglomerate also. Oh, really? So, so it was almost, uh, yeah. <laughs> stars were aligned. So I went and I... Uh, I, I got a banker and I and I said this is you know I've got to somehow buy this Amer company but here's two things I need I need a world class private equity firm and I need a partner in China. Two weeks later, a Chinese company with a private equity firm, a bunch of guys out of Goldman's, put an offer in for Amer and, and went to buy it. And I said, oh my God, I said, this is perfect. And I called them up and said, you know, I want to buy 20%. percent I, I want to be your partner and. And I think, and and uh, and this is kind of sight unseen. We didn't know each other, We'd, you know, really? and uh, and uh, well, and we we met each other for about an hour before we made, you know, a seven billion dollar deal. We did it. They've been the best partners in the world, and now I get to fulfill on that dream. Yeah, and uh, we've taken now probably six to ten of the greatest employees we had at Lou Lemon are now running Arcteryx, and um, I think you're gonna. I think you're going to see these companies in Amer be phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Well, Arterix has got a, its own reputation as being a phenomenal yeah. brand. I, my wife buys a bunch of it. I've got the jackets. Everything. Yeah. No, yeah, it's a great, great product, great brand. So that's great. Good answer. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, Chip, thank you for being on the coastal front today. Um, as you know, there's been people who I know very personally who you've had a huge impact on their life because of the work that you've done and you've given them huge opportunities to change their lives. And that's why I do Coastal Front, to, to get people like you on here to really mm -hmm. highlight the success, success stories in our own backyard and say, you know what, there are guys out there like Chip Wilson that need to be champion. And you know, these, these words of advice I think will go a long ways for our listeners, to, you know, somebody who's an entrepreneur trying to get inspired. <laughs> so thank you for that. My thank pleasure. you for being on the show. I'm, I'm honored, really yeah. honored. It's yeah. anything I can do for Vancouver. <laughs> Great, Chip Wilson. Uh, founder of Lululemon, thank you for being on Coastal Front. Thank you so much. Thanks.